The book of Acts was written by the physician Luke sometime between 58 and 65 AD. It is the continuation of Luke's gospel account to Theophilus, detailing the work of Jesus and the apostles after the resurrection. After Jesus commissions the disciples to go into all the world, he promises that God's personal presence will come in his place to transform their hearts and empower them to be effective witnesses of the gospel. While the apostles are celebrating a festival in Jerusalem after Jesus' ascension, God's Spirit comes over them like fire, just as His presence had filled the ancient Israelite tabernacle. Emboldened by the Spirit, the disciples share the story of Jesus with the multi-ethnic audience at the feast, who hear and believe in Jesus Christ. From here, the disciples preach daily in the temple courts, reaching thousands of people who respond to the message of Jesus. Groups of followers start to gather in their homes, practicing Jesus' message of radical love and generosity. The Jewish religious establishment resists this revolutionary movement, citing Christianity as a dangerous, deviant act of rebellion. The persecution results in a mass departure of Christians from Jerusalem. It is this exodus that sparks the transference of the gospel past the walls of Jerusalem to the non-Jewish people in the surrounding regions, just as God had always intended. Saul, a persecutor of Christians, is changed after an encounter with the blinding glory of Jesus, becoming a passionate advocate for the gospel. Having received the new name Paul, he travels to Greek and Roman cities challenging their social values by teaching equality among men and women, slave and free alike, and loyalty to Jesus alone as the one true God. Paul plants churches along his travels, but is repeatedly imprisoned for his gospel witness. While enchained, God uses Paul to write letters of encouragement and edification to new churches all across the world. These letters would later become the scriptures for generations of Christians to come. In the book of Acts, we see the sovereignty of God on display as he uses the persecution of his people to advance the gospel throughout the world. I love the book of Acts. It tells our story in many ways of how the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And you and I find ourselves at the, in, the, in the middle of the same story, bearing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in Duluth, Minnesota, or Superior, Wisconsin in 2023, entrusted with the same task that these disciples were entrusted with. Now, there's no possible way that I can preach through the book of Acts today. Sorry for the invitation, Amy, but I'm going to have to decline. Um, but this summer, we're going to do a sermon series in Acts like 12 to Acts 20 as we see the gospel go into all of these different Gentile cities. So we're going we're gonna to spend a little bit more time there as we take a break from the thread this summer and, and see the context and the story of where all these letters come from. So uh, before we dive in, would you just pray with me and let's ask God to speak to us. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you set the world on fire after Jesus rose from the dead. That you transformed Peter and John from timid, scared followers to bold proclaimers of the truth. And we pray that you would do that in us as well.
Holy Spirit, would you take this story that you not only caused to happen, but you also caused that it would be, or prepared that it would be recorded so that we could read it now. Would you shape and form us as a people? Would you speak to all of us in this room? God, speak either through me or in spite of me, but speak to everyone. We need to hear from you. So we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Why is it that some people believe the gospel while others hear the exact same message and are completely unmoved? It's the same message, but for some, it changes their life. It becomes good news, and for others, it's eh, not compelling at all. In the same way, how is it that one group of people can witness an event or a miracle and come to one conclusion about it, and another group of people witness the exact same event or the exact same miracle and come to a completely different conclusion. In, in our story this morning, we're going to read about an undeniable miracle that happens to a lame man who can walk. A, a man who is crippled for 40 years is healed in an instant so that he walks and jumps and runs around and faced with this incredible work of God, there are many people who believe in Jesus. It was done in his name. While others see the exact same event and they harden their hearts into skepticism, unbelief, and believe that it is their job to squelch this movement and to silence these Jesus followers. Why do you think that's the case? Why such different responses to the same event? I think one of the biggest myths about skepticism and unbelief is that people don't believe because Jesus and the gospel is implausible for them to believe. Now, I understand skepticism, and in fact, I, I respect it. Jesus makes a lot of demands on our life. I wouldn't want you to give your life to something that isn't actually true, nor would I want to give my life to that same thing. But the idea that you can simply convince someone that the gospel is true and then they will joyfully bow the knee to Jesus is naive at best. Underneath people's skepticism of the gospel is not just an intellectual objection, but a, an issue of the will. What I mean to say is the primary reason that most people don't believe is because they don't want to believe because they don't like the implications of that belief. Now, I'll come back to that in a little bit. Let's read our story together and, and see how this works in real time. Uh, open your Bible to Acts chapter 3. I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation this morning because I'm trying to cover two chapters, and I just love how plain it makes us sometimes. So you can follow along on the screen, or you can follow along in your Bibles. Now, let me just set the context of what's going on before this story. In Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost arrives, and the Holy Spirit falls on all of the disciples of Jesus. Peter gets up, and he explains the phenomenon that's going on, and 3,000 people on that day put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church goes from 120 to 3,000 in a day. The church then begins gathering daily at the temple and in each other's homes, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching devoting themselves to prayer, to fellowship, to worship, to evangelism. And in chapter 3, we just see the continuing story, a day in the life of the early church in Jerusalem. But oh, what a day it is. Let's read. 
Verse 1, Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the 3 o'clock prayer service. Isn't it interesting that even though they've met Jesus, they still have their religious rituals, their regular times of prayer where they would gather in the temple grounds together with other believers to seek God and other non-believers or Jewish people to seek God. 3 p.m. was one of the regular times of Jewish prayer at the temple for the Jews, and the disciples, even after meeting Jesus, continue on in this tradition. They were disciplined. They had a rule of life, so to speak, routines and rituals that, that would guide their lives. We would do well to find some of the same. It doesn't have to be 3 p.m. every particular day, but having some rhythms and routines of prayer and gathering to shape and form us as God's people as well would be incredibly beneficial. Verse 2. As they approached the temple, a man lame from birth was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so that he could beg from the people going into the temple. So every day he came to the same gate. I would, if I had to pick, I would probably go to the beautiful gate as opposed to, for instance, the dung gate, right? They had both of them. We'll, we'll choose the beautiful gate. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. Peter and John looked at him intently, and Peter said, look at us. The lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. Then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. Now this is putting yourself out there, isn't it? It would have been incredibly awkward if this didn't work. Like you grab this guy, pull him up, and he just crumples to the ground. You say, in the name of Jesus, walk, and he doesn't. But the Spirit does a miracle here. He does an incredible work. And this man who's been crippled for over 40 years walks. Not only that, verse, um, verse 8, he jumped up, stood on his feet, and began to walk. Then walking, leaping, and praising God, he went into the temple with them. All the people saw him walking and heard him praising God. When they realized that he was the lame beggar they had seen so often at the beautiful gate, they were absolutely astounded, as we would be as well, right? They all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colonnade where the man was holding tightly to Peter and John. So everybody knows who this guy is. They've walked by him every single day. So when he starts running around and praising the Lord and jumping and leaping, you can imagine it created quite a stir. That makes sense. And so Peter, seeing this crowd begin to form, is like, I got a sermon for this. Verse 12, Peter saw his opportunity and dressed the crowd. People of Israel, he said, what is so surprising about this? You serious? What is so surprising about a guy that we've seen for 40 years, lame, crippled, sitting at this gate, now running and, and jumping around? It's a miracle, Peter. That's why it's surprising. This doesn't happen every day. What's so surprising about this? And why stare at us as though we had made this man walk by our own power or godliness? For it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. This is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. You rejected this holy righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. 
You killed the author of life, but God raised him for the dead. This is what you would call not a seeker-sensitive sermon, right? He's not soft-pedaling anything. He's saying, you killed the Messiah. You killed God, but he raised him up. Wow. And we are witnesses of this fact. Verse 16, through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed. And you know how crippled he was before. Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. Friends, I realize that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance. But God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah. That he must suffer these things. Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord. And he will again send you Jesus your appointed Messiah, for he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Listen carefully to everything he tells you. <clears throat> then Moses said, anyone who will not listen to the prophet will be completely cut off from God's people. Starting with Samuel, every prophet spoke about what is happening today. You are children of these prophets, and you are included in the covenant God promised to your ancestors. For God said to Abraham, through your descendants, all the families on the earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant Jesus, he sent him first to you people of Israel to bless you by turning each of you back from your sinful ways. What a sermon. This is just a summary of the sermon, but there are four things that stand out to me in Peter's gospel message. The first is that it is all about Jesus, isn't it? Peter immediately gives glory to Jesus for the miracle rather than taking credit for him himself. He says, hey, I want to be clear here. It wasn't my power that healed this man. It was the powerful name of Jesus the Messiah. All faithful preachers of God's word and those that God uses to perform miracles ought to follow in these footsteps. It's all about Jesus. It's his power, his work, his healing, his salvation. On our best days, we are simply pointing people to one who can actually do something for them, who can actually satisfy, who is better than us. And so the first thing we learn is that it is all about Jesus, and our message should be as well. Second, so much of the early church's preaching was focused on the resurrection of Jesus as the convincing proof of its truth truthfulness. Now, tell me, if you concocted a big elaborate scheme to make Jesus appear as if he had resurrected from the dead so that you could continue on his work, but it was a big elaborate hoax, what is one thing that you would begin to drop from the central point of your preaching and teaching? Probably the resurrection, right? You begin shifting the focus away from Jesus being alive as the convincing proof of who he was to now Jesus' ethical teaching or ministry or approach to the poor. But the reality of the disciples' world is that Jesus is alive. We saw him die. We saw him rise again. And we are proclaiming to you good news that he's accomplished salvation for us. This truth changes everything. That's why it's highlighted. Third, the content of the message that he preaches is deeply rooted in the Old Testament scripture. 
Now, we've been journeying through this thread sermon series, one sermon for each book of the Bible. And so we're familiar with the promises made about the Messiah that was to come in the Old Testament. And Peter tries to connect all of the dots for the people listening. He says, you missed this part about the Messiah's coming, that he had to suffer in order to bring about forgiveness of sins, that he had to bear the wrath of God in your place so that God could be both just and release mercy and forgiveness to sinners. That Jesus comes and he pays our debt. That Messiah came and he came to wipe away our sin. But to do that, he had to suffer. It's right there in the scriptures, but we missed it. He says, but your actions were done in ignorance. You didn't know. Frankly, he didn't know until Jesus told him. And even then, he didn't know until the Spirit showed up or until Jesus rose from the dead. And they're like, what is going on? But he says, all of the prophets are pointing to these days, these realities, from Moses to Samuel and all of the other prophets, even Abraham himself, and the promise that God made to Abraham that through your descendant, all of the peoples of the earth will be blessed. They find their fulfillment in Jesus. He's bringing these things about. And so it's all about Jesus. It centers on the truth of the resurrection The content of the message is deeply shaped by the Old Testament. And fourth, his main goal in walking through all of this stuff was that those who hear would repent and believe in Jesus. That they might be forgiven and refreshed and that times of renewal would come, not just that they would marvel at a miracle. Notice how the miracle is there. It's front and center, but it isn't what it's about. The miracle is there to to provide a testimony to the truth of what he's saying. And the goal is not that they marvel at the miracle. The goal is that they would respond to the preaching of the good news, that they would repent and be forgiven. And we read that times of refreshment would come from the presence of the Lord, that he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah, forgiven and refreshed. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Repent so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord. Repentance brings about refreshment or renewal. We often don't think about repentance that way. We often think about repentance as outing ourselves, bringing into the open the the dark deeds of our heart and our soul. Often in the middle of repentance, we see very clearly the lie that our sin isn't innocent, that it actually does hurt people. And when we bring it out into the light, we often don't think about refreshment and renewal. We think about the pain that's caused all of the people that we love. But we're told here that repentance brings about times of refreshment and renewal. Because it gets it out into the open and Jesus' blood is sufficient to cleanse us or to forgive us of our sins And the Spirit comes and refreshes our soul because no longer are we being poisoned from the very core of our being. Sin, like mold, has a tendency to grow in the dark, but not in the light. When we bring it out into the open and it loses its secrecy, it often loses its power. And so often, right along with times of renewal and refreshment, right there in the center, is that the people of God wake up and they begin repenting of their sin. See, the gospel frees us to do that. We're not about performing for others or or showing God how good we are. We simply acknowledge our shortcoming. We acknowledge our sin. We bring it to him. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So how are the people here going to respond? What are they going to do? Chapter 4 continues with two radically different responses. Verse 1, while Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. They arrest them, and since it was already evening, they put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard the message believed it, so that the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. There it is. The responses to this event and to this message couldn't be more different. Some believe and some reject. The religious leaders, the priests, the temple guard, the Sadducees, they come and they have Peter and John arrested. We're told that they are annoyed or disturbed by them and their proclamation of the resurrection. They don't really care that a miracle has just happened. They are more concerned with protecting their own power and traditions and influence overseeing what is plain right in front of them. But here's the crazy part of the story. As Peter and John are being arrested, thousands of people are like, I'm in. I mean, think about that scene. These guys, they're preaching, and their preaching brings about some significant, costly consequences. They are arrested and put in jail, and as they're being cuffed, or whatever the first century Jewish equivalent of that is, thousands of people are saying, I'm in. I want some of that. Crazy, isn't it? And yet, here in the middle of it, is this man that everybody used to walk by. Most people probably diverted their eyes because if you make eye contact, then you feel something. But here he is, not sitting, not even standing, running around, leaping and praising God, and you have no categories for that. And now this guy is saying, I didn't do it. Jesus did it, and this is why he came. They believe. They saw the healing. They turned to the Lord for refreshment and forgiveness. And here's the cool thing. This morning, you can too. We have the testimony of God's word. These stories passed down to us that confirm the truthfulness of the good news of Jesus Christ. Things that happened that were recorded that thousands of people witnessed. You can believe today too. You can repent of your sin, acknowledging your shortcoming before God, and trust in Jesus to do what you cannot. Save yourself. We're told that the number of believers goes from 3,000 people in chapter 2 to now 5,000 men. The number of actual believers, including women and children, is probably between 10 and 20,000. That's amazing, isn't it? But we got to remember the context so that we don't just try to think this is the normative way that every church should operate. Many of these thousands of people had heard Jesus teach. They had seen miracles. Some of them had even been healed by Jesus himself. Now, do you think that would make you conducive to the message? If your brother was battling a demon and Jesus cast it out, if your sister was blind and now she sees, do you think you'd be more prone to believe in him? You better believe you would, right? 
And so for three years, Jesus has been proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's been demonstrating that rule and that reign through miracles, the reversing of the effects of the fall. And the people that saw him and heard him and didn't yet believe in him when he died and rose again, now they're hearing that he's the Messiah and he's the one that provides salvation for all of us. They're like, I'm in. I saw it. And I see this. I want some of that. It's important that we understand these stories happen in context so that we don't have the expectation that every time the church gathers, 3,000 people should come to know him or that a miracle should happen. Now, it could happen, and I'd be all for that. That sounds great to me. But in between these miraculous, amazing events is a lot of ordinary work. A lot of ordinary believers meeting together, breaking bread in their homes, praying sharing the gospel with their neighbors and their family and their friends. And day after day, God adds to their number. And every once in a while, these events that draw thousands happen. Keep that in mind when you think about what faithful ministry looks like. I hope that encourages you. But not everybody responds. You ever heard the, if only I could just see an undeniable miracle, then I would believe. The religious leaders see an undeniable miracle, and what do they do? Arrest those men. Let's silence them. It's sad, really. The story picks up with Peter and John the next morning before the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish ruling council of 70 members, the ones who are the highest religious authority of their day. Keep in mind, these are the same people that months before condemned Jesus to death, which makes Peter and John's response toward them all the more amazing. Verse 5. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other relatives of the high priest. We've seen them before, haven't we? They brought the two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to you all, or to all of you and to all the people of Israel, that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. There is salvation in no one else, proclaim the disciples, for God has given no other name other than the name of Jesus under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus is exclusive. He claims to be the only way. His followers claim that he is the only way in which someone can be saved. There's no way around that if you want to take seriously the Bible and the claims about Jesus. He himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And now his disciples repeat that claim. But here's the thing, that will draw the ire of many people in our city, this claim of exclusivity, 
That's a power play. But here's the thing. Jesus is no more exclusive than any other religion in the world. And honestly, I found the most exclusive people in the world to be those who claim tolerance. Have you found that as well? If you don't embrace their view of tolerance, which means tolerate everything I tolerate and condemn everything I condemn, then you will be shouted down and canceled. That doesn't sound very tolerant to me. And, and, and interestingly enough, that's a product of Western enlightenment and thinking, or postmodern thinking. Most people around the world don't think that way. Most people innately know that there is truth that can be known or can be denied, but that truth exists outside of ourselves. We don't create it ourselves. And so this idea that Christians are intolerant, but everybody else is tolerant, is hogwash. Everyone's intolerant in some way. So look, not to whether or not people make truth claims. People make truth claims all the time. But look at what those truth claims produce in their lives. See, in the gospel of Jesus, the grace that we experience profoundly changes the people who embrace it. And it profoundly changes how we view everyone else. Not that I'm better than you because I believe the truth, but I was just like you. And God opened my eyes. In fact, I'm reconciled and right with God, not because I'm better than you, but because Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior. Would you trust in him too? I find that that makes pretty tolerant people, pretty empathetic people, not people that say truth doesn't exist or that Jesus isn't who he claimed to be, but people of understanding that understand where people are different and believe different things because we did as, as well at one time. Peter explains, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. But before that, he says, you want to know by what power this man has been healed? Let me make it clear to you and to all Israel. The man you crucified, Jesus, but whom God raised from the dead, it was his power and his name that healed this man. Because he's the Messiah. He's the stone that the builders rejected that has now become the cornerstone of which everything moving forward is built. He applies the promise of Isaiah 28, 16 to Jesus, saying that's talking about him. Verse 13, the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. I love this. I love this part of the story. Jesus chooses ordinary fishermen to spend three years with him, and through that, they are profoundly changed. The Holy Spirit empowers their life and preaching in a way that is noticeable. And not because of their religious pedigree or schooling, but because of God's power. And they took note. These are the guys who hung with Jesus. This should encourage all of us that you don't have to have a seminary education to be a faithful witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not opposed to religious education and understanding. We should all have good doctrine and theology. But what this tells us is that that's not what makes you an effective witness. It is God's power in you, emboldening you to testify to who Jesus is. Oh, I could go on and on about that, but I won't. Verse 14. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was no them the council could say. 
So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves. What should we do with these men? They asked each other. We can't deny that they have performed a miraculous sign and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. So they called the apostles back in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Here's where the real issue of their heart is revealed, isn't it? They don't actually care about the truth. They care about preserving their own power and traditions They care so much about that that they can't acknowledge a miracle staring them in the face in which they have no explanation for. They don't care that this man is healed. The very one that they had walked by perhaps hundreds of times. But notice how blind they are. They can't even consider that whether what these men are saying is true. Because all they can think about is preserving their power and silencing them. Now, What may seem like a crazy move for these religious leaders is actually profoundly insightful as we look into our own hearts and how they actually work. John Calvin famously said that our hearts are idol factories. And what he meant by that is that when we sin, when we break God's law, when we deny the truth in front of our very eyes, it is because something else has taken control of the throne of our life. We want something else more than we want the truth. We need something else in order to make us feel happy or secure. We need something else more than God in that particular moment. If you really boil it away, I think there are three core motivations or idols of the heart from which all of the other ones spring. Power, acceptance, and comfort. Power, a sense of being in control or, or, or feeling safe. Acceptance, the need for affirmation or approval or acceptance or to feel like our lives count for something and are meaningful. Comfort, the desire for comfort for an easy life to be free from pain or hardships or suffering. Now, for a minute, let's just give these religious leaders the benefit of the doubt that we would appreciate They probably don't deserve it, but for the sake of argument, these men, I would say, care deeply about their people, about preserving their nation, and in their own way, following God. They've been put in a rather awkward position. They serve as intermediaries between the Roman government and the people. And because of their willingness to play ball or to compromise with the Romans, they've been given a degree of religious autonomy or freedom to practice their religion as long as the people don't rebel or make things difficult for Rome. That's their position. It's a tenuous spot. Do you see that? And they've faced all kinds of internal threats and external threats. External threats from Rome and ambitious generals or politicians that want to come in and just strip the land bare. Internal threats from people claiming to be the Messiah and leading various rebellions that gets everyone killed and draws the ire of Rome. In their minds, Jesus is simply another revolutionary that needed to be taken care of. But now his followers claim that he's alive resurrected from the dead. And then they see miracle after miracle, and they realize this isn't just going to go away like we'd hoped. But rather than reconsider their original goals and ask, could this Jesus actually be the Messiah that we missed? 
They blind their eyes to what's happening right in front of them. And they seek rather to just eliminate the threat and preserve their power. Even if that means ignoring miracles before their eyes. It's easier for them to rationalize away than it is to consider maybe we got this wrong. Tells us something about the human heart, doesn't it? It's, it's easy to look at the religious leaders and think, man, what a bunch of idiots. But we do the exact same thing, just differently. Let me give you some examples of how this works. It's amazing the, to observe the things that people will rationalize in order to gain or to keep power. Working 100 hours a week in order to get promoted Because once you're in the position of power, then you'll make the necessary changes to the work culture so that people can have a more realistic work-life balance, but you'll sacrifice your family to get there. And by the time you get there, you don't see clearly anymore what's so broken about it. Or we live in a world rife with scandal after scandal among Christian leaders having affairs or stealing money on the side. Behavior that they wouldn't let anyone around them justify But they begin to think, oh, I'm different. I need this in order to maintain ministry. Look at what God is doing, and look at how God is blessing and using the ministry. I'm irreplaceable here. I need this. Lies, lies, lies. Or people lying in order to protect something that they think can't fail. Whether it's a business or a political candidate or even a ministry, they think lying is easier than dealing with the fallout of the truth. Or or look at how we spend money. We go to crazy lengths in order to make sure that people like us and approve of us. Think about how silly we were in high school, wanting the approval of other people that were just as insecure as we were. And it goes on into adulthood where we spend money we don't have on things we don't need to impress people who don't care. I love that quote. Why? Because underneath all of that spending is the crazy desire for affirmation and approval which ironically only God can meet in us. Don't you see the things that often rule on the throne of our hearts are counterfeits. They can't actually deliver what they promise. But you know who can? God. That no matter how much power or, we, or control we have in this world, we're never safe unless we're in the hands of a sovereign God who loves us and knows history backward and forward. No matter how much we medicate our pain with drugs or sex or alcohol or whatever, it doesn't actually help. Maybe it provides a temporary hit or numbing, but rather a God who has entered into our suffering, suffered more than us, and has overcome it, He's the one who can actually bring comfort and safety to our souls. He's the one who can actually affirm us as his created beings, that in Christ, all of the benefits of Christ's life are applied to us so that when God looks at us, he sees us through the lens of his son and says, well done, good and faithful servant. This is my son, this is my daughter, of whom I am well pleased. And if he gives that verdict, it doesn't matter what everybody else says about me. Do you see how the gospel actually speaks to the true longings and needs in our heart? And yet often we reject it thinking that these things are going to satisfy us. They won't. See, this example in the scriptures tells us what happened at the very least. 
But it's not so that we can pile on the religious leaders of Jesus' day, but so that we can have insight into the dark contours of our own heart and how we lie to ourselves and suppress the truth right in front of us. So what is it? What do you want more than the truth? What are you blinding yourself to in order to get something different? And how is it that the gospel actually answers that deepest need in your life? See, when you get there, that's when you're set free. So how do you think Peter and John are going to respond to this command, don't talk about Jesus anymore? Verse 19. Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop talking, telling about everything we have seen and heard. The council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot. For everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years. Peter and John respond, you, you've got to be crazy if you think we're going to listen to you instead of God. I mean, come on, you just killed the Messiah. It's not exactly like you've got a great track record here. But the religious leaders, they're in a bit of a bind, aren't they? They've kind of outkicked their coverage when it comes to their authority because there's this guy who was crippled but now is running around and they can't do anything about it and so they give him empty threats. Just stop it or we'll get you. Right. I love this story. Oh, it fills my heart with a sense of excitement, at least in part, of what the church can be when the kingdom of God has come. Maybe not fully like it will one day when Jesus returns, but at least in part. So, so what do you and I take home today? I got five observations that you can take home. First, people don't believe because they don't want to believe, not because faith is implausible. The best thing that our apologetic arguments and offenses can do is help people to see that their primary objection to faith isn't a rational one. It's a volitional one or an object, an objection that stems from the will or the level of desire. Sometimes you hear, if I see an undeniable miracle, then I'll believe. And it sounds good, but this story shows it's just not true. Now, this doesn't mean that we abandon apologetics or rational arguments that, that, or that that shouldn't be part of our strategy. It's just that the question, is it true, is not the only thing that's driving people. Yes, it needs to be true. But it also matters that we show them that it's good. Do you guys see that? Sometimes we can focus all of our attention, all of our intellect, all of our energy on proving it's true. And we forget to tell people it's not only true, it's good. It works. It actually provides the peace that we long for in an anxious, anxious world. It actually gives us the acceptance that we crave in an insecure world. All of the things that are driving us, Jesus actually answers by what he's done. That's good news. And so, yes, it's important that it's true. But that's not the only objection that people have. It's also good. And guys, as a church, one of the ways that we show them that is that we display its goodness in our lives and we display its goodness in how we treat each other. That provides a, a compelling apologetic that rational argument will never get to. I'm not saying it's unimportant. I'm saying it's not the only thing. Second, sometimes it costs us to follow Jesus. See, the gospel of Jesus isn't always well received. Of all the things that wouldn't be offensive, you would think that helping a crippled man walk wouldn't be offensive. But it is. 
Because it proves the truth of a very offensive message that you can't save yourself. You need a savior and his name's Jesus. If you think that you can faithfully follow Jesus and never be opposed by a world that's in rebellion against him, you haven't read much of the New Testament and you have ungrounded expectations. Sometimes the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ will put us on the outs with the ethos of our day with the HR departments in our companies. And it doesn't give us a license to be obnoxious, but it does warn us that there is a cost to saying Jesus is Lord. Which leads into the third observation. When confronted with obeying God or obeying the authorities of the land, we must obey God regardless of the cost. And I'm not talking about masks. Or any other area that's important for us to apply wisdom because it's a fairly nuanced discussion. It means that our ultimate loyalty is no longer in question. And if faced with a choice of whether to obey the clear command of God or obey the laws of the land that we live in, God wins every time regardless of the cost. The two men that are preaching this message, one of them is crucified for his allegiance to Jesus. The other spends the remainder of his life in exile, it costs them something to follow Jesus, and yet they continue to testify to it. The Sanhedrin were in authority over Peter and John, but their authority did not supersede God's. I could probably preach an entire message on this fairly complex issue and how it applies in a representative democracy that's different than the world of the Bible. But suffice it to say, and maybe I will someday, there are times when two realms of authority will come into conflict, and as a Christian, God wins every time. Fourth, when faced with the repercussions regarding their disobedience to the religious leaders, they prayed. When Peter and John are released, the very first thing they do is they gather the church, and they call on the Lord in prayer. It's in Acts chapter 4, verse 23 to 31 It's an amazing prayer. I would commend you to read it this week. That prayer shakes the room. But notice they don't pray that the persecution would stop. Rather, they pray for more boldness and that God would stretch out his hand, continue performing miracles to confirm the truth of the message that they proclaim. And that's just what happens. Finally, I want to encourage you that the same Holy Spirit at work in the book of Acts is at work in us. Christian, the same spirit that was at work in Peter and John is now at work in you if you're in Christ. You've been given the same spirit. Well, Pastor Kyle, why can't I just look at crippled people and say, walk in the name of Jesus? Why aren't the same things happening today like they were? And that's a complex question. It doesn't have a simple answer. I can tell you that miracles are happening with striking regularity, but maybe not right here. In fact, they often seem to be happening in other countries more than ours. I don't know if it's because the need is greater there or if because the gospel is just taking root in those communities and needing a demonstration of God's power to confirm its truthfulness. But I can tell you that the Spirit is working like this today. But differently, depending on the people and the culture that it is reaching. In India and in China, places that don't have very good medical care, there are lots of miraculous healings that are taking place to confirm the truth of the message. In Muslim-dominated backgrounds, the Middle East, Iran, a bunch of other countries like that, it's not healing so much as visions and dreams where Jesus is revealing himself to spiritual seekers. Here, 
We see some things, but it seems like we see them less and less. Which makes us ask the question, what is the need for our context? What do people in our world need to see and experience? See, we have incredible health care at our beck and call. We have a clear history of Christianity and its influence on society. But as a people, we need to experience God's peace and his love in profound ways, don't we? We need to be set free from the crippling anxiety driving so many of our lives. We need to not just be convinced of the truth of the gospel, but reintroduced as to why it's good news. We need to experience the love of God that we might live as a peaceful, non-anxious people in the midst of a chaotic and crazy world. See, what the Bible offers us in the Holy Spirit isn't a magic incantation or spell, but rather an invitation to live supernaturally. To live as if the Holy Spirit of God is around and wanting to reveal himself to us and to others, the love of God in Jesus Christ, the peace of God found in Jesus Christ, an alleviation of suffering in all of its forms, physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, to have the Holy Spirit wake us up, not only to the goodness of God, but also to his power is exactly what our people need, what our community needs. That spirit is available to you. It will cost you something, but it will be so worth it. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and for how it inspires us and provokes us and encourages us and challenges us. Oh, Lord, would you do your work in us? Would you have your way in us? Would you stretch out your hand and perform miraculous healings that we might believe and be strengthened in our faith? Would you allow us to experience your peace in this anxious and chaotic world? Would you allow us to know in the depth of our being the love you have for us so that we don't seek it in other things? Oh, Holy Spirit, would you reveal yourself to your people, confirming to us not only the truth of the gospel, but its goodness. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.